ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, what next for the capital of Papua New Guinea? Residents of Port Moresby deal with the aftermath of yesterday's deadly riots. Also, offshore wind farms facing some tough opposition, but experts say they're an important part of Australia's move to renewable energy. And flood-hit communities in Victoria calling for more mitigation funding. We had to make sure that we fixed the levees so as everyone could get back on with their life and farming again. It's not just our responsibility. Like, you know, the government has a role here to play. First tonight, 16 people have now been confirmed dead after violent riots in Papua New Guinea's capital, Port Moresby, and its second largest city, Leh. Chaos erupted there yesterday after police went on strike over a pay cut and the unrest led to a night of looting and violence with shops and businesses set alight. Our PNG correspondent Tim Swanston is in Port Moresby. Tim, what's been happening in Port Moresby today? Is the unrest over? Look, uh, it seems that the security situation has been somewhat quelled at this stage. Certainly, we were able to drive around Port Moresby relatively safely. There is a very eerie atmosphere, though, I will say, around the city. Um, It is complete and utter carnage out there on the streets. So many streets are absolutely littered with the items that were looted yesterday. Uh, So many shops have been burnt down and they're still smouldering effectively. We went to one of the worst hit areas, which was a warehouse in the north of the city in Gerahu, a warehouse for, you know, major appliances. It's one of the largest retailers here in Port Moresby. And that huge warehouse is basically just an empty husk now after it was looted and burnt to the ground. Um, We know that uh, at this stage, 16 people are dead across the country. Nine people died in yesterday's violence in Port Moresby. That violence has expanded across the country and we've seen that seven people have been killed in Leh this morning, the second largest city here in Papua New Guinea. So uh, while things are remain safe here in, in Port Moresby, it does appear that that security situation is uh, expanding across the country and uh, certainly we're waiting to hear uh, from the Prime Minister about uh, that security situation and how safe things are across the country. So who or, or what is being blamed for yesterday's chaos? Yeah, it's it's really a, a confluence of events ultimately. I mean, speaking to you yesterday is, was, of course, about a, a protest that police and defence had launched in the morning related to the pay. But ultimately now, effectively, them abandoning their posts is now being blamed for opportunists being able to take that uh, moment uh, while police had uh, walked off the job to start violence. And that has, in an avalanche, basically caused more and more looting and rioting across the street. So in a earlier press conference held this morning, Prime Minister James Marape did say that heads will roll. He said that he's looking, of course, to Department of Finance staff for yesterday's pay issue, but now, of course, examining the role of police. Um, they are protest that they held, their decision to walk off the job, and then ultimately whether things should have been quelled much more quickly than they were. 
Um, so, but it, but it is ultimately, you know, a confluence of things. Like I said, the political situation here can't be ignored. Things do feel very much like a tinderbox ahead of an impending vote of no confidence in the prime minister, which is likely next month. Um, so, these have all come together to create these conditions for the looting and rioting that we saw last night. So, you think that no confidence motion will be held next month? It wouldn't be held sooner. Well, Parliament sits, uh, Parliament will be recalled next month, or rather Parliament adjourned to next month. Um, I mean, Parliament could likely sit sooner. We are, we know that a meeting of Cabinet is effectively underway at this stage and they are considering a state of emergency. Uh, MPs, though, within government ranks, these are generally coalition partners, are starting to abandon the government in droves today. We've already seen several announcements from MPs saying that they're have lost confidence in the government too. Uh, a grace period for a vote of no confidence technically doesn't end until next month. That's when it could be brought on. But ultimately, we could potentially see the Prime Minister removed by other means or stepping aside, um, depending on how this wave of momentum goes with other MPs. So it's a very delicate, very volatile and very rapidly changing political situation here. And Tim, you described the damage in Port Moresby. Are there immediate challenges with things like water, electricity, telecommunications, things like that? Electricity and water are seemingly uh, fine for the moment, um, but it's 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 essentials, you know. Uh, we've seen that most of the fuel stores as well as other grocery stores have been closed today. One of the uh, fuel uh, suppliers that was open today had a queue that stretched effectively a kilometre. You know, the, the access for basic services over the coming weeks is going to be such an immense challenge here in, in Port Moresby. I was speaking to senior business leaders last night and this morning, and they said that, you know, they foresee that as being one of the single largest challenges to come, um, you know, effectively being that basic supply, how it gets to people, you know, where is the brick and mortar stores to get it to people and the like. So, so, so certainly food is going to remain a significant issue. So too, of course, will be fuel and, and ultimately then power uh, as well, because of how much people rely on generators here in Port Moresby and the fuel for that too. So it's it's a cascading series of events now that could really cause some very serious issues here in Port Moresby as far as basic services for those who need it are concerned. The ABC's Papua New Guinea correspondent, Tim Swanston. Back in Australia now and Victoria's state emergency service is door-knocking hundreds of homes in Shepparton in the state's north as the region prepares for flooding over the next day. The clean-up is continuing in other parts of the state and some residents are critical of what they say is a lack of flood planning by all levels of government. Luke Siddham-Dundon filed this report. As the floodwaters drop in some of the hardest hit communities, some people are already discussing how to protect themselves the next time. Tracy Kine is a member of Rochester's Flood Mitigation Group and spoke to the Victorian Government at the start of the week before waters rose on Tuesday. She says the situation was helped by the fact Lake Epilock still had some capacity. The dam was sitting at approximately 90% full on Sunday. It had also approximately 70,000 meg go into the dam. Now, if that had been at the same levels 
of 22, we would have had a similar outcome to 22. Now, what it tells us is that keeping that dam at 90% until we can get something more permanent in place, that certainly saved our bacon Tuesday morning. Part of the problem is letting water out of the dam. Tracy Kine is campaigning for the installation of floodgates at Lake Epilogue Dam to ensure the water level can be managed, especially during disasters. She says this latest flood is proof that homes can be protected if the dam is managed properly. I certainly want to keep the government on side at the moment because we want to put some things in place to help protect our region. They didn't believe that we were going to get any further rain. We even had a comment that we're heading into an El Nino, so we need to hold all the water we can in Epilock. This has proven that um, this is not a one in 100 year flood and that something needs to be done urgently. If I was able to have that conversation directly with our Prime Minister, it's really around future funding for mitigation. If we had adequate mitigation in place, this event would be no more than just a a high river event. Rochester man Lee Wilson is a former Campaspe Shire Mayor. He now chairs the Community Recovery Committee established after the previous flood in 2022. It's not a simple thing of relocating houses in town. It's not a simple thing of uh, levies. We need real hard works and measures on opening up the river channel through Rochester, reducing obstructions through Rochester, and then importantly, improving how lake effluent volumes are managed so that we've got all the bases covered for future events. Frustrations are being felt elsewhere in the state too, with farmers managing two floods in 15 months and unsure how the Victorian government plans to tackle the problem. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe they could tell me. It's not their responsibility. They just don't want to know anything about it. Alistair Chessels is a dairy and beef farmer in the small town of Andira in northern Victoria. The 2022 floods destroyed levees around his town, forcing farming families to fork out more than $200,000 between them to repair those levees and protect their livelihoods. That was a pretty tough time because there was farmers who lost all their crops and, you know, had no income. So we had to make sure that we fixed the levies so as everyone could get back on with their life and farming again and, and not have the worry of maybe a nuisance flood flooding across their property again. Floodwaters are expected to peak overnight at 10.4 metres in the northern Victorian town of Shepparton and will then flow to nearby communities in Karimba and Bunbatha. Matt Price lives and has cattle in the area and says a number of levies there still haven't been fixed. A lot of people have um, volunteered their time to help come along and try to patch them up a little bit as best as we can. We're just trying to patch them up to a point where we think that the water's going to come up to and get and come through. Matt Price says the onus shouldn't be on the community to fund their own flood protections. We're hoping to, you know, push local government and state and federal government to, you know, relook at the rural levy situation, especially along the lower Goulburn, because it's it is a bit of a choking point along the Goulburn River. PM put questions to the office of the State Emergency Services Minister, Jacqueline Symes, but didn't hear back in time. The Federal Minister, Murray Watt's office, responded, pointing to the $50 million disaster ready fund announced in June last year. Still, rural Victorian communities say more needs to be done before the next floods come around.
Luke Siddham, Dundon, reporting. To Queensland now, where the state government says it has no choice but to completely rebuild a controversial dam because it doesn't meet safety standards. Authorities say the 60,000 people who live downstream of the Paradise Dam in central Queensland aren't at risk, but the wall can't be safely fixed either. It's not clear how long it'll take to build the new dam wall just downstream of the existing one or how much it'll cost. Here's Stephanie Smale. When the Paradise Dam was promised to central Queenslanders in the late 1990s by then-Premier Peter Beattie, it was billed as a way to water the region's food bowl. But Glenn Stockton from the state-owned Sunwater, which operates the dam, says there are big problems with its building blocks. The combination of low cement and clay uh, leads to a chemical reaction which can't be undone. Over time, the structure will continue to lose strength. Therefore, investing uh, substantial funds in trying to recover that or bring that up to standard is actually not viable. The dam wall was badly damaged by floods in 2013. As a result, the height of the wall was reduced and it was drained to 42% of its original capacity. Despite the long-term issues, Glenn Stockton points out there have been two more big floods since the wall was lowered and it's still standing. We raised the dam uh, safety parameters from a 1 in 200 year event to a 1 in 5,000 year event. So I'm confident that the dam has the capacity to support. Since we've undertaken that uh, essential works, the dam has passed a number of flood events successfully. Growers have been angry since the dam's capacity was reduced by more than half arguing they need more water to grow their crops. Cane grower Judy Plath says the plan to build a new wall offers more questions than answers. So many businesses rely on irrigated agriculture in Bundaberg and that water comes from Paradise Dam. This community has now been thrown into a 10, 15, 20 year delay waiting for our future to be returned. This dam has been a complex engineering process from the start. That's Queensland's Water Minister, Glenn Butcher. He says building the new dam wall is about public safety and water security. I don't think it's embarrassing at all. I I think what it means for the community of Bundaberg and also for the irrigators here in the region is that they're now going to be delivered an asset that's going to last them 100 years. Experts say there were problems from the earliest stages of the dam's delivery. Professor Stuart Kahn is the head of Sydney University's School of Civil Engineering. When Peter Beattie first promised to build Paradise Dam in 1998, that was in the lead-up to an election, and he promised that if he was elected, that he'd have that dam built within five years. And sure enough, within five years, he was he was turning the first sod. So there was clearly a lot of pressure in that time. The problem with that is if you don't have a realistic time frame set out to do the assessment, then you may well end up with a rushed job and you may well end up with what we see now, which appears to be that there are major technical deficiencies in, in the dam that was built at that time. And he's warning there's no way to guarantee the mistakes of the past won't be made again. I don't think that we have anything more in place to ensure that than we did when these apparent mistakes were made uh, after 1998. For a short period, we had a body called the National Water Commission, and the National Water Commission's job was to provide that governance and, and oversight to make sure that when we're making decisions and implementing decisions about major water infrastructure, that we do that in alignment with the National Water Initiative, an agreement that the Commonwealth Government and states came together to agree on how we would 
properly implement these types of decisions. And we now no longer have any form of, of governance or oversight on these, these types of major decisions. Stuart Kahn says the region will have to make do with the existing dam for at least 10 years. I would imagine that the project itself, from, from announcement to, to being completed, would be unlikely to be ready in less than a decade. The state government says the federal government is on board with the assessment of the new project and there's still $1.2 billion in combined funding set aside for it. But it also concedes the build to fix the problems with the Paradise Dam could get bigger. Stephanie Smale reporting. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Ahead, Taiwan to elect a new president this weekend. Offshore wind farms have been touted as a key solution in Australia's transition to renewable energy. But with one major project in the pipeline being dealt a blow this week under environmental laws, will the farms become commonplace? Alexandra Humphreys takes a look. Earlier this week, it was revealed the federal government had scuppered the Victorian government's plan to build a renewable energy terminal linked to planned offshore wind farms due to its impacts on an internationally significant wetland. The Victorian government has been left scrambling to find a solution. Bruce Mountain from Victoria University's Energy Policy Centre doesn't believe it's a significant blow. It's not like the point we've got to now is the outcome of an exhaustive design process and a ranking of, of options. It's early stages. The government put forward a proposal to develop a port in a uh, Ramsar wetlands and the federal government said that's not going to be suitable. Um, but I should think there are many other options available. The Victorian venture is just one of a list of offshore wind projects in the pipeline. The Australian government is assessing six high-priority areas for offshore ventures around the country. Professor Mountain believes Australia has plenty of options to pursue a transition to renewable energy. He says there's enormous untapped potential for solar on buildings like shopping centres and storage facilities and more onshore wind farms. We are in many respects spoiled for choice. Um, offshore wind has other advantages. Uh, the wind is more uh, is more constant offshore. Um, I gather it's correlated better to demand Perhaps offshore is a useful but not essential part of our mix. There's another advantage too. Offshore wind developments are less likely to get caught up in public protests, which has been a significant problem for numerous energy and transmission projects on land. Electricity transmission expansion is one of the enormous social licence challenges and uh, offshore alleviates... Uh, most of that. In fact, offshore in the Gippsland area, most notably, alleviates most of that because we have very good existing transmission connection between Gippsland and Melbourne. While there's debate about the impacts of Australia's offshore wind farm plans, the developments could also bring potential environmental benefits. Dr Claire Shostek is an ecosystem services specialist from the Plymouth Marine Laboratory in the UK. The actual turbine structures can create a new type of habitat. So it's a bit like when you have a shipwreck on the seabed, um, the the structure of that shipwreck or, or whatever it is on the seabed actually creates habitat structure, um, it creates new habitat and it provides shelter for 
different creatures living in or on the seabed or in the sea. Um, and it can actually attract animals and it can increase abundance and diversity. But she says there can also be negative impacts, particularly during construction. Bird strikes can be an issue too. So obviously there's the pile driving where they're actually uh, putting the base of the turbines in. Um, so that can create underwater noise um, and also there could be in increased vessel traffic um, to and from sites. Victoria alone has a target of building two gigawatts of offshore wind projects by 2032, which it says could power 1.5 million homes. That report from Alexandra Humphreys and Krishani Danji. In the coming hours in The Hague, the United Nations' top court will start hearing South Africa's case, alleging Israel has committed genocide in Gaza. Israel is denying the accusation in the strongest possible terms, and the US calls the case meritless. But international law experts are expecting the court to consider the case carefully and possibly order a ceasefire. Jacqueline Breen filed this report. I want to make a few points absolutely clear. On the eve of what's described as a landmark case in the International Court of Justice, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu posted this video statement on social media. Israel has no intention of permanently occupying Gaza or displacing its civilian population. Israel is fighting Hamas terrorists, not the Palestinian population. And we are doing so in full compliance with international law. It's the first time he's directly rejected calls from far-right members of his government to rid Gaza of Palestinians completely by pushing the population out and take it instead for Israel. Our goal is to rid Gaza of Hamas terrorists and free our hostages. Once this is achieved, Gaza can be demilitarised and de-radicalised, thereby creating a possibility for a better future for Israel and Palestinians alike. Overnight Australian time, lawyers representing South Africa will open their case, which accuses Israel of violating the 1948 Genocide Convention, which was written in the aftermath of the Holocaust. To win, they'd have to prove that Israel's actions in response to the Hamas attacks of October 7 are intended to destroy the Palestinian population in Gaza, in whole or in part. If it goes ahead, the case would likely take years. But in the interim, South Africa is seeking orders from the court for a ceasefire. Juliet McIntyre is an international law expert from the University of South Australia. All that South Africa has to do at the moment is establish that there's a plausible risk of genocide occurring. Down the track, that intense standard is very, very strictly applied and it's very difficult to overcome. So even if we see a situation where the court does order provisional measures, that doesn't guarantee that down the line they will find that Israel has committed genocide. There'll be more evidence and the standard is a lot stricter. When it was filed late last month, Israel called the case an outrage and an exploitation of the court. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken called it meritless during his visit to Israel this week, where he also said, though, that the death toll in Gaza is far too high. But University of Melbourne law professor Carrie McDougall says the court is expected to agree that it has jurisdiction and the case will go ahead. There are many statements on the public record that I think give rise to a need to make further inquiry and as to whether genocide is being committed. I don't think it's clear-cut by any means. It's a, a complex legal issue that would require um, a detailed you know, investigation and um, consideration of the, the facts and the law. 
but there's enough there, I think, to put lawyers on notice that we should be looking at this very carefully. Um, and as the only court with jurisdiction, um, you know, it is appropriate that it is the ICJ that it be considering this. Any order of the court would ultimately be unenforceable, Dr McDougall says, but carry significant political and moral weight. Certainly the International Court of Justice is um, viewed very authoritatively by states. It, it enjoys a high degree of respect. Um, we might expect Israel to be deeply embarrassed by um, any provisional measures order that might be issued by the court. And it would be certainly come under a high degree of um, pressure from both those that uh, are very critical already of Israel, but also its close friends and partners, um, to be very careful that in its military operations against Hamas in the Gaza Strip, um, that it is scrupulously adhering to its international obligations, including in relation to genocide. Among the 17 judges on the court that will sit to hear the case is an Australian, Judge Hilary Charlesworth. The Australian government has declined to comment. In the face of calls from independent Senator David Pocock today to support South Africa and from the federal opposition to stand with Israel. In a statement, a DFAT spokesperson said Australia respects the independence of the court and its critical role in upholding the rules-based order. Jacqueline Breen reporting. As countries like Australia and the US keep a nervous watch over tensions between Taiwan and China, the Taiwanese will vote in presidential and parliamentary elections this Saturday. China regards Taiwan as part of its territory and makes no secret of the fact it eventually plans to annex the self-ruled territory. The current president of Taiwan is Tsai Ing-wen from the Democratic Progressive Party, but she's stepping down after serving the maximum two terms and the party's candidate is William Lai. To learn more about the Taiwanese poll, I spoke to Dr Benjamin Herskovich, a research fellow at the Australian National University. It's an unusual race in that we have three very strong contenders for the presidency, the incumbent DPP, then there is the KMT, the old nationalist party, they are typically the alternative party of government and of the presidency in Taiwan. But there is also a third party candidate in the TPP, which is kind of populist candidate who is charting a different course between the KMT and the DPP. At this stage, it seems like we're heading towards a DPP victory. The smart money seems to be on that outcome. And the polling seems to suggest that that is the most likely outcome. But as we've seen in recent years, in a whole host of different democracies around the world, it is a bold endeavour to put a lot of faith in polling. And the KMT, though, that is a more pro-China party? It is a fraught question of how to characterise the different political parties in Taiwan in terms of their attitude towards Beijing and their approach to cross-strait security issues. In times gone by, it probably would have been broadly accurate to say that the KMT is more amenable to Beijing's view of things and there is less of a gap between the Chinese Communist Party's view and the KMT's view and that there was a much more pronounced gap between Beijing's view and the view of the DPP. But I think it is fair to say in broad brushstroke terms that in recent years, there has been a narrowing of the gap between the political parties in Taiwan on questions of the approach to Beijing and 
the approach to cross-strait security in general. And what I think that means in practice is that all three of the presidential contenders are broadly speaking in favor of a continuation of something along the lines of what we currently have, which is that Taiwan does not declare de jure independence. It does not claim to be an independent sovereign country on the world stage, but it seeks to secure its ongoing de facto independence. And that means engaging with the outside world and securing its trading relationships with other countries, but in a way that doesn't claim to be an independent state, which is a red line for China. I've seen at least one commentator characterise this election as a contest between China and the US. Do you think that's a, a fair description? I don't think it is, to be honest. I think it reduces the really broad range of concerns that the Taiwanese people have. Taiwanese voters, like voters anywhere in the world, will vote on a whole range of different issues. And I think to see the election in Taiwan through the prism of US-China or geopolitics or the Chinese Communist Party's long-term objective of annexing Taiwan is to deny the Taiwanese people their agency and also to really simplify what is happening here. There would be many, many voters in Taiwan who are not particularly concerned about these big geopolitical questions of the United States and China and are not really thinking about threats from Beijing or inducements from the Chinese Communist Party, but they're rather concerned about the quality of the roads in their local neighborhood or the effectiveness of the public education system or the prospects that their children or grandchildren will have when they enter the job market after they graduate from high school or university. Do you think Western governments like Australia and the US will be hoping that the incumbent party, the the DPP, is returned to the presidency? When it comes to the views of the US government or the Australian government or the Japanese government or other like-minded governments, I think the most plausible assessment would be that publicly at least, they won't take a position on what they would like to see, electorally speaking, but they would prefer a continuation of the cross-strait status quo, of the current circumstances of a de facto independent Taiwan that can exercise its own rights and freedoms internally, but which doesn't do anything that is likely to provoke a really strong, aggressive reaction from Beijing, like making a declaration of independence. Dr Benjamin Herskovich from the ANU. Thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. You'll find all our interviews and reports on the PM webpage and you can catch the program live or later on the ABC Listen app. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. I hope you can join me then. Good night.